The following is a message from our 10-week series, Hashtag Happy. For more, visit LinworthRoadChurch.com. Well, again, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. And today we are going to continue on in our Hashtag Happy series. And today the big idea is Happy Salvation. But before we dive into that this morning, I thought it might be helpful just to, to review what, where we've been the last few weeks. For those of you who have uh, already forgotten or if you have missed one of these last two Sundays. And, and basically what we've been doing is we have been walking through a series on happiness. And really, so far we've been talking about ways of, uh, the, the ways of our thinking and certain behaviors that, that we do. How, how those things either help or how they hurt us in our pursuit of joy and happiness. And so that first week, we, we talked a lot about our thought lives. We talked about how uh, these negative thinking patterns that we're all so prone to, how these things can actually uh, affect our moods and our feelings. And, and uh, we also talked about how uh, some ways that you and I, we can combat those negative thoughts with positive biblical truth. We even looked at this six-step uh, process that we see all throughout the Bible and, and specifically in Psalm 77 by where you and I, we can ask ourselves some questions so that we can, can challenge those negative thoughts, those negative thinking patterns, and begin to form new thoughts and therefore experience new and happier feelings. And then last week, Pastor Chris, he, he walked us through thinking about how media affects us. And I don't know about you, but if you were here, I thought he did an excellent job of just showing us how happiness is, whether we think it is or not, because I think a lot of times we, we try to deny this, but, but our happiness is affected by what we allow into our minds, including the media we consume. And so if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to that, because I, I think you'll be surprised. I don't know how he was able to do this, but, but somehow he talked about uh, media and the negative effects of it without uh, it being this huge guilt trip, right? Because that's what you would assume in a message like that, that, that we would be told in application to go delete Facebook or Instagram and, and cancel Netflix and, and chuck our smartphones into the toilet, Right? But he didn't do that. And so, again, if you missed it, I want to encourage you to, to get online and listen to that. But today we are going to move on and we're going to look at this idea of happy salvation. And, you know, one of the things that I think makes living in 21st century America so challenging is our pace of life. Right? Many of us, we have a never-ending to-do list. We're affected by even the amount of information that we have to process on a daily basis. And you can have this for free. I, I sort of just stumbled upon this stat this week, and, and it is staggering. But, but they say that it is estimated that one weekday edition of today's New York Times contains more information than the average person in 17th century England was likely to come across in their entire lifetime. And so think about that. One random New York Times uh, newspaper edition from, you know, today is more information, it's more data than someone would come across in their entire lifetime. And yet you and I, we have way more than just one newspaper thrown at us a day. We have this constant barrage of information and data, and, and, and it does, I think, affect us. You see, I think some of us, we got duped when, when we were told that, that technology was going to make our lives easier and more efficient. Because I think if we were honest and we would look at our lives and even the rhythm of our lives, nothing could be farther from the truth. See, I think most of us, our lives are defined by do, 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 and go, 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 and hurry, hurry, hurry. 
And yet when we come to the Bible, we are told that Jesus uttered from the cross the following words. He said, it is finished. And in a hurry, sick, to-do list culture, are there any greater, are there any happier words than that, than to hear, it is finished. You see, Jesus, when he cried out with those words, he was essentially saying, guys, look, it is done. I guess if he was George W. Bush, he might have said, mission accomplished, right? You guys remember that? Guess not. Um, (laughs) In other words, what Jesus was saying there was this. He said, look, I lived the life you could not live. And now I have died the death that you deserved. I accomplished. It is done. It is finished. Yet I think if you and I, if we are honest, I think that concept is is difficult for many of us to believe. You see, it's hard for us to truly believe that, that there is nothing else that we need to do to earn or to gain our salvation. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to talk about why I think this is so hard for us to believe. And then I want to look at some ways, the, some things that you and I can do to better help us believe it. And before we move on, let's open up and, uh, with a word of prayer here. Father, we uh, just so need you this morning to come into this room and to fill this place with your presence, Lord, and to uh, illuminate your word to us. God, would you open the scriptures in such a way that, that all of us would leave here changed, that, God, we would leave here with a, a different perspective of who you are and of what you have done uh, for us in Christ. And so uh, we, we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, to set up this first reason why I think it's so hard for us to believe, I want to show uh, a really, really short video clip that I think uh, will help illustrate it. So here we go. All right, (laughs) for those of you who have not had the joy of seeing Napoleon Dynamite, what you just witnessed was this very goofy man named Napoleon Dynamite, and uh, he has just worked at a chicken farm all day long. And so he's in this nasty chicken farm, and clearly he looks like he's never worked a day in his life, and and the the day kind of ends with them eating lunch. And their lunch is uh, nothing but egg salad sandwiches, hard-boiled eggs, and then this like drink mixture of just egg yolks mixed together, (laughs) and... You see the old man drinking it. You think it's orange juice, but no, it's actually egg yolks. And, and, uh, and so what you, we just saw was him finally getting paid at the end of this hard day. And clearly he was not happy with his wages. That's like a dollar an hour. And so he's upset. But I showed the clip because I think it illustrates the way that you and I are hardwired to think. You see, we think that if, if we work hard, then we get rewarded, right? Because do equals dollars. Or to say it negatively, if you don't work, you won't get paid. You see, I think we learned this idea early on. I think for some of us, it it got taught to us through uh, things like allowance. And I know even just saying that word, some of you are bitter right now. You're like, allowance? I never got allowance. Uh, But some of us did. And, and you know, the way allowance would work is you would do these little chores around the house. You'd make your bed. You'd take the trash out. And then you would get rewarded for that. Or maybe some of us, we learned it through little sayings like, the early bird gets the worm. Or maybe you had someone say to you when you weren't working, hey son, are you, are you working hard or hardly working? 
And so I think this idea that it's deeply ingrained into our hearts and minds. And in many ways, this is how the world works. And I think in a lot of ways you could say this is how the world should work, right? If not, nothing would get done and we'd all die and starve to death. And so I'm glad the world works this way. And yet, for you and I, when we come to the gospel, when we come to the Bible, we are told that it's through Christ's work that we get our reward. We're told, uh, in other words, that that we receive the blessings and the benefits of his labor, not our own. In fact, the Bible is very clear that there is nothing that you and I can do to earn or to gain our salvation. And that idea, that concept is something that the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time and energy writing about. You see him devote a whole letter to it, like in the book of Galatians. He also writes about it in Romans. But where I want us to turn this morning... It's to the book of Ephesians. And so, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, we read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we see here in these first couple verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, he's laying out the problem. Or in other words, he's giving us the bad news. He says, look, all of you were dead in your sins. You were essentially following and obeying Satan. You You were following the prince of the power of the air. You were doing whatever your flesh wanted you to do. You were were living it up. And because of living a life like that, you were under God's wrath. I mean, he even says, he says, you were by nature children of God's wrath like the rest of mankind. But then we come to verse 4, and I think we see two of the greatest words in all of the Bible. And that is this. We see, but God. You see, Paul, he has just painted this bleak, hopeless picture of our lives and of our futures. But then in verse 4, he breaks in with, but God. He says, you were full of so much sin, but God. You were full of so, uh, you were dead in your trespasses, but God. You were following the prince of the power of the air, but God. You were living out the passions of the flesh and you were carrying out the desires of your body and mind, but God. He says, you were by nature children of God's wrath, but God. 
You see Paul there, he, he goes on, he says, but God, being rich in mercy. You see, some of us in this room, we're materially rich. We can look at our bank accounts and, and, and define ourselves as being rich. Our God, he is rich in mercy. He is rich in grace. And we're told that because of his richness and mercy and because of the, the great love he has for us, he intervened. He broke into our helpless situation and he took us from being dead and he made us alive. But then as, as Paul's describing this process of salvation, he, he kind of slips in there. He says, by grace you have been saved. See, I think Paul, as he's talking about salvation, he, he doesn't want you and I to get confused and to somehow think that we had anything to do with this. In fact, to, to reiterate it or to reinforce it, he states that, that phrase again in verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so maybe you're wondering, why did Paul feel it necessary to repeat that phrase and, and even to expand on it to include that, that it's not as a result of works? Well, I think he does because he understands that that, uh, that uh, is, the, uh, is the default of the human heart. Our, our hearts are prone to think that we can earn it. Our hearts are prone to think if we just work hard enough, we can gain salvation. You see, there's even a sense that if we would read the Bible and start in Genesis and work our way through uh, those first early books in the Bible, we would uh, come to the law that God gave Moses. And, and, you know, there's a sense in which you could read the law and you might uh, walk away thinking that, you know, if I just do these things, I, I can do this. If I, if I just obey enough, if I don't do certain things, then I can earn my way to God. And yet here we are, if we step back into uh, uh, 2016 and, and look at redemptive history, we understand, and, and the Bible even teaches us in places like Romans, that, that the law was actually never meant to save in fact, the law was there to show us that we cannot live up. It was meant there to, to, to condemn us and to show us that we need something greater. We need a Savior. See, here's the thing. I think most of us believe theologically that we're saved by grace and not by works. And yet I think a lot of us practically, we live our lives as if it was still based on what we do and on how we obey. And, and in case you disagree, let me try to illustrate it this way. Uh, uh, I share this in our fully mature course, but um, I got this from D.A. Carson in a book he wrote called Scandalous, and he talks about it this way. He says, do you ever have a day that runs something like this? You get up in the morning, it's drizzling and hot. The air conditioner is broken. You reach for a clean, fresh pair of socks, and you can't find two that match. You stub your toe on that nail sticking out of the wall that you knew you should have fixed three years ago. You cut yourself while you're shaving. You stumble down to breakfast. And that day, your wife has gone out for a special meeting with her friends and has not done anything. You go out to the car and you put your key in the ignition and it will not start. You knew that you should have had the battery checked because it's deader than a dodo. You get to work late and people are saying rude things about you. And your boss says, hey, have you finished that report yet? You're staying late tonight if you haven't. The whole day unfolds in one endless set of many irritants. You have an opportunity to speak to some non-Christian friends, a neighbor, someone over the back fence, someone at the gas station. And you're already in such a sour frame that when they ask you some dumb question about religion, you answer with a kind of curtness and condescending wit that leaves them shriveled in a pile of embarrassment. 
You feel guilty, but you've done it now. Eventually, you return home and your wife has cooked that disgusting stew that your children like, but that you detest. You cannot be civil to her and she cannot be civil to you. The kids aren't behaving uh, particularly well that night. Your wife wants you to do jobs around the house, but you want to watch football. Finally, it's time for bed at the end of this long day and your prayer runs something like this. Dear God, this has been a rotten day. I'm not very proud of myself. I'm frankly ashamed, but I really don't have anything to say. I'm, I'm sorry I have not done better. Forgive my sin. Bless everybody in the whole world. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. And so that's day number one. Well, a few days later, you wake up and you find that the air is refreshingly cool. The sun is shining. The windows are open. The, the fresh air is wafting through the screen. You hear the birds singing. You smell something. Bacon? Bacon? I, I can't believe it. I, I wonder what the celebration is. You get up, you reach for a clean pair of socks, you feel full of energy. Energy. You're, you're whistling as you wash in the bathroom, and then after a wonderful quiet time with your spouse, you eat a hearty breakfast. You go out to your car and you put the key in the ignition, and vroom, the car starts right up, and it takes off. You get to work early, and, and uh, everybody commends you in your industriousness and your intelligence and the way that you discharge your duties. Your boss says, hey, wonderful to see you today. Hey, did I tell you that you're going to get a raise? You did such a wonderful job on that contract. Now you come across that same person at the gas station and wonder of wonders, the poor brute actually asks you another question. This time, however, you respond with wisdom and tact and gentleness and understanding, courteousness, insight and kindness. And lo and behold, he promises to come to church with you this next Sunday. You arrive home and there is a joyous family dinner. The kids are behaving and you, are, you have an intimate conversation with your wife as the two of you clean up the kitchen. Finally, at the end of this day, you get down to pray and your prayer goes something like this. Eternal and matchless God, we bow in your glorious presence and brokenness and gratitude. We bless you that in your infinite mercy and great grace, you have poured favor upon us. We are not worthy of the least of your mercies, and now you go on and on in such flowery theological language. You thank God for all the things in the day, and then you pray for missionaries and their children and their first cousins twice removed. Then you start praying for everyone you can think of in your church, and then you meditate on the names of Christ that you can think of in Scripture. An hour goes by, and you go to bed instantly, and you fall to sleep justified. And so Carson continues on, he says, On which of these two occasions have you fallen into the dreadful trap of paganism? He says, God help us. The sad reality is that both approaches to God are an abomination. How dare you approach the mercy seat of God on the basis of what kind of day you have had, as if that were the basis for our entrance into the presence of a sovereign and holy God. No wonder we can't beat the devil. This is works theology. It has nothing to do with grace and the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. Nothing. He says, do you not understand that we overcome the accuser on the ground of the blood of Christ? Nothing more, nothing less. That is how we win. It is the only way that we win. This is the only ground of our acceptance before God.
You see, what Carson is saying there in that illustration is this. He's saying, when you and I, when we approach God and we, we uh, view our standing before Him based on how good of a day we have had or on how much we have obeyed, when we do that, we distort the gospel. And we do not live in light of its truth. In other words, when you and I, when we think that God approves of us or that He loves us more based on, on how good we are, when we do that, we are practically living as if salvation is based on our works, on our obedience. And again, we have to keep fighting this because this is the default of our hearts and minds. And so that's why David Murray in his book, The Happy Christian, he, he argues that, that the ten most disbelieved letters in the Bible are this, N-O-T-O-F-W-O-R-K-S. And if you're in this room and you're a parent, you know exactly what I just spelled out because you do this all the time with your kids. You're like, I-C-E, C-R-E-A-M. Because if you say ice cream, then you have to get it. But if you're asking the question to your wife, you can spell it out. Uh, And so what he just spelled out there was not of works. And Murray argues that he thinks that those are the, the ten most disbelieved letters in our Bibles. And yet, that's exactly what Paul just said in Ephesians 2.9. He said it's by grace through faith, not of works. You see, there are many Christians who, who struggle to understand this truth and to believe it. And as a result, they feel enslaved to try to earn God's favor and approval. And because that is, is how they live their lives, they are left with joyless, unhappy Lives, Because deep down, all of us know that we are not measuring up. And yet when those same believers, when this truth finally clicks, when it finally settles in their heart, there is so much joy. There's so much freedom. It's as if a a, a hundred pound gorilla finally got off your back. I think they weigh more than that, but you know, I'm guessing. Uh, It's like a gorilla just, he gets off your back and you kick him out. There's so much happiness that happens when you and I, when we get this, when we understand the gospel. You know, I I recently heard about a pastor who, who after many, many years of being a Christian, even serving as a a full-time pastor, he he basically came to realize this. He, through some counseling, uh, uh, came to understand that that he had become a pastor, that that he had gone into full-time ministry because at some level he believed he had to. In other words, he, he felt like he had to in order to, to earn his salvation or, or at the very least to pay God back. In other words, this brother, he failed to realize and to embrace the grace of God. And, he didn't, and the thing is, is, it wasn't like he was in a church that didn't teach that. In fact, I'm sure he gave many messages himself where he talked about the grace of God, where he, he talked about how we're saved by grace through faith. And yet that truth, it had never settled in his heart. And yet now that it has, this man is full of so much joy, so much happiness. A weight has been lifted off of him. And why shouldn't he be? There's a reason why this is called, the reason why the gospel is called good news. You see, if you and I, if we had to stand before God one day and and have him roll out a, a list of all of our good deeds and all of our bad deeds, that would be a bad day, right? I know some of you are like, well, I don't, it might be close. No, it would not be close. It would be a, a very bad day. If salvation is based on your and I work, that is, that is uh, bad news. That is not good news. But again, I, I think by and large, if we're being honest, this is, this is hard for some of us to, to get. We, some of us, we struggle with this because of our own self-righteousness. You see, some of us, we have a deep-seated desire to, to self-justify. 
And we see this in our culture all around us, both in the church and outside the church. And in fact, you even see it in the first Rocky movie. I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> and if you're here and you're over 40, you would say that Rocky 1 was the, the greatest Rocky movie and they should have stopped with that one. But if you're under 40, you would say, no, 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 no. Rocky 1 stunk. Rocky 4 is where it's at, right? When he fights the Russian. Right? Am I, ah, I asked someone afterwards, like, man, you totally pegged me. Rocky won. I'm like, well, she's like, I'm over 40. I'm like, okay. Um, either way, I think we can all agree that Rocky 5 should have never have happened, right? Tommy Gunn, that was a, that was a disaster. Somebody needs to ask for their money back. But uh, in Rocky 1, there's this scene. And it's the night before the big fight. And he, he walks down to the arena. And he's looking at the lights and the poster. And, and he's looking at the boxing ring. And you see, he begins to doubt himself. He begins to think, you know what, I don't think I can win. And so he goes back home and he crawls in bed with Adrian and he's kind of up in the fetal position. And here's what he says. He says, all I want to do is go the distance. (laughs) I don't think I can keep it up the whole time, but he says, uh, all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with creed. And if I can go the distance, you see... And that bell rings, you know, and I'm still standing. I'm going to know for the first time in my life, you see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What's Rocky doing there? He's saying, I have to prove myself. I have to earn. I I have to justify my existence. And I think you and I, subtly, maybe we don't realize it, but I think we do this all the time. I think self-righteousness, the desire to to prove ourselves, to self-justify, it is deep down in our hearts. Here's here's how one author, uh, author named Jerry Bridges puts it. He says this. He says, self-righteousness is a gospel enemy because it disregards, devalues, and discredits the gospel provisions of the righteousness of Christ. The sinless life he lived for us and the sin-bearing death he died for us. Self-righteousness turns grace on its head because it views the sinner as deserving God's blessing rather than as undeserving. You see, this is the very thing that, again, Paul was fighting in the book of Galatians. Paul, in that book, he talks about how this is a, a distorting of the gospel. He talks about it as being contrary to the, to the real, true gospel. He even says at one point, he says, look, Galatians, if even I or, another, or even an angel, if one of us would come to you and preach a contrary gospel to this, let them be accursed. Bridges continues, he says, the different gospel Paul referred to was a doctrine of self-righteousness. A man-centered, performance-based, legalistic approach to making oneself acceptable to God by following religious rules. It was anti-gospel, a dangerous doctrine of self-justification. See, I think some of us, we, we, I don't know why, but we, some of us, we grew up in churches where this was, this was kind of taught, maybe not explicitly. Maybe someone didn't get up and say, you know what, you have to be a good person or you're going to go to hell. But somewhere in there, that got communicated to us. And, and perhaps it's just simply because that's our, that's our default. And perhaps it's because this is Satan's biggest lie to us. We see this with the Pharisees and religious leaders in Jesus' day. This continues to be a problem with all other major religions. All other major religions say you have to earn it. It's by your good works. It's by doing certain practices. We even see this with non-religious secular people. 
right? They're not trying to, to justify themselves before God or earn their way to God, but they are trying to justify the, the fact that they think they're a good person, right? For some of them, they, they think they're a good person simply because they ride their bikes to work, because they eat organic food and, and buy fair trade coffee and, and fair trade clothes. Or maybe they think because they, they rescue dogs from the local shelter. You know, who rescued who, right? Have you ever seen that bumper sticker? If you have it, I'm sorry. It just, I don't, maybe I don't get it. But, but yeah, who rescued who? Um, if you don't believe me, if you're still doubting this, go to the, I, I just challenge you, go to the mall or talk to some coworkers and, and ask them, why, why do you think God should allow you into heaven? And if they say to you, well, that's a dumb question because I'm an atheist and I don't think God exists, say, okay, well, tell me why, why you think you're a good person. In other words, why would I want to live next to you? And if you would ask that question, you would begin to hear all kinds of self-justifying answers. And so if you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't think I struggle with that. I don't know. Let me, let me share a list of ten questions that I got uh, from the book, The Bookends of the Christian Life. And, and these are pretty revealing. Uh, number one. Do you tend to live by a list of do's and don'ts? Number two, is it, is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards aren't as high as yours? Man, that one gets me. You know, because I, I have a standard, and I shared a couple weeks ago, I struggle with perfectionism. And I look around at some of you lazy bums, and I just think, what's your problem? You need to get it together. And so this is me. I'm, I'm self-righteous in my heart. Number three, he says, do you assume that practicing spiritual discipline should result in God's blessing? Do you, when you read the Bible, when you pray, do you assume then that God owes you something? Number four, do you feel you're a better person than most? Number five, has it been a long time since you identified a sin and repented of it? Have you ever, you know, is it, you just think... Uh, no, I'm doing pretty good. Actually, I, I, think, I think I made it. I don't think I sin anymore. Is that, is that how you think? Or are you constantly are just, not in an a, a unhealthy way, but are you aware that there's still areas in your life that, that you need to work on, that, that God is still uh, uh, growing you in? So have you identified a sin and repented of it? Number six, do you resent it when others point out your spiritual blind spots? You know, so you have that brother or sister in your life who, who comes along and they're like, hey, you know, I just, I, I noticed that earlier you were, you were a little bit short, you were a little bit uh, rude, I'm not sure if you noticed that, and they walk away and you think, that, I, I can't believe them. How dare they point out something in me? Do you think like that? Or kind of similarly, do you, do you readily recognize the sins of others but not your own? Are some of you right now, you're like, man, I, you know, I wish so-and-so was here because they, they need to hear this message, Right? Are you doing that? Number eight, do you have a sense that God owes you a good life? Kind of similarly, number nine, do you get angry when difficulties and suffering comes into your life? Are, you, are some of you bitter because you just think, you know, man, I, I, I gave it up all for Christ. You know, when I said yes to Jesus, I, ever since then, my life's gone terrible. And, 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 and I just don't get it. God owes me. I'm angry. And then number ten. Do you seldom think of the cross? You see, that may seem random, but the reality is, is you and I, we can't look at the cross of Christ and see him hanging there and realizing what he did for us and walk away feeling self-righteous, feeling like there's something to boast about. 
And so this is some of our struggle. Some of us, we, we fall and we tend to, to wrestle with self-righteousness. We're the, the older brother, if you will. But some of us, our, our struggle is a little bit different, and that is we, we struggle with persistent guilt. You see, some of us, we have actually, we've lived up to our moral standards, and, and therefore, we feel self-righteous about them. We think we're doing pretty good. But others of us, we, we are keenly aware of our shortcomings and our lack of measuring up. And therefore, we are wrecked by all kinds of guilt and shame. We're constantly trapped by this fear of being found out. Right? You just, you walk around, you just think, man, if, 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 if they only knew, if that person in my life group only knew what was really going on or, or what I did, they wouldn't love me, they wouldn't like me, they wouldn't accept me. Here's the thing, though. The reality is, is that both self-righteousness and persistent guilt, they both stem from the same source, which is pride. They stem from a, a lack of understanding and belief in Christ's finished work in salvation. And so, how do you know if you're struggling with persistent guilt? Well, here's some more questions. And, and by the way, I know there, you're, you probably have no way of writing these down because we're going fast. But I can email them to you if you're interested. But, but here are ten questions to ask yourself to discern if you're struggling with persistent guilt. Number one. Are you painfully preoccupied with a particular habitual sin? Can you just not get over it? You just, you know, you just keep stumbling in this one area and you just, you kind of almost obsess about it. You're preoccupied with it. Number two, are you discouraged and depressed by your failure to measure up? Again, for us perfectionists and, and, and some of us in the homes we grew up in, this, this feeling of, of failing to measure up, it just, it's deep in our hearts. Is that how you feel? Number three, do you frequently experience anxiety that something's about to go wrong? You know, that feeling of just, man, I just know it. I, I, I did this the other day. I was just thanking the Lord for, you know, it's like, God, you've just been so good to me. My wife, we just celebrated our, our uh, nine-year anniversary this past week, and I was just thanking God for my wife. And I, I don't, out of nowhere, this thought popped in my head. I bet she's going to get cancer and die. Here I am, you know? Why do I think like that? And I just, I had to rebuke myself in the car and say, no. I, why, why would that be the case? Christ has already bore the wrath of God. And my wife may get cancer and she may die or I, we're all going to die at some point. But in that moment, I need to realize that uh, that is not the wrath of God. That is not punishment. And so do you struggle with that? Number four, does it appear that God can use others but not you? Are some of you afraid to serve here in this church because you just think, I... I understand that God can use them. I understand that he forgave them, but, but not me. I need to, I need to, I'm, I'm not worthy. I can't, he can't use me. Number five, is there something in your past that you just can't seem to get over? Number six, do you fear that your past will come back to haunt you? I think there's some politicians that maybe feel that way right now, right? But, but do you feel that way? Are you worried that something from your past is going to come back to get you? Along with that, number seven, do, you, do uh, your difficult circumstances seem like God's judgment for your sin? You know, for some of you, the, the, the tire goes flat and you just think, well, I knew because I, I cussed yesterday that that's why this happened. Do you think like that? Number eight, do you steer clear of intimate relationships or small group discussion? Are you afraid to let others into your life to be fully known by, by a group of Christians who love you and who can speak into your life? Are you afraid of that? Number nine, when you sin, do you get a vague sense that somehow 
There'll be a price to pay, very similar to some other ones. And then finally, number 10, do you seldom think of the cross? You see, if you're struggling with persistent guilt, you can't look at the cross and see what Jesus did for you. You can't see the price that he paid and still walk away with feeling guilty. You know that he paid it all. You know that that price was extremely high, and yet he met it. And you know that you never could, and so you can rest in his finished work. You see, here's the other thing. Persistent guilt on the surface looks like humility. But again, if you dig down a little bit deeper, it actually is pride. You see, because if you and I, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, and yet we're struggling with persistent guilt, with guilt and shame, we are essentially saying that Christ's righteousness, that his work on the cross, that it was not enough for us. Again, both things, self-righteousness and persistent guilt. They, they err. The reason that they are, are not right is because they are seeking to, to find the source of righteousness and justification within themselves, within ourselves, and not Christ. But again, the Bible is very clear. You and I, we understand, uh, again, based on the Word of God, that we are not saved by our works. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says it extremely clearly. He says, by works of the law shall no one be justified. And the reason that is, is because we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So God made Jesus who knew no sin, who was perfect, to become our sin on the cross. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch that? Christ, in that moment, he got all of our sin. And we got all of his righteousness. So therefore, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, to be a Christian, it means that I rest not on my works, but his. It means I am not accepted by my record, but his record. You see, again, in that moment, we got all of Christ's righteousness. And he got all of our sin, including our past, our present, and our future ones. You see, think about it. It's 2016. And so when Christ died on the cross, how much of your sin was still in the future? Well, unless you are the oldest person in the the history of the world, all of your sin was still yet in the future. Therefore, when you stumble tomorrow or later today or next week or 30 years from now, that sin, it has already been paid for if you are in Christ. And so what that means is that you and I, we can't boast and be self-righteous when we're doing good. But it also means that we can't wallow in persistent guilt when we're having a bad day. Because again, both things are saying Christ isn't enough. And so this is our struggle. This is why maybe it's, it's so hard for us to truly believe the, the gospel of, do, of done. The gospel of it is finished. The gospel of he is enough. And so if this is our struggle, what kind of things can we do to, to help us believe it better? Well... I think the first thing we, we can acknowledge here is, number one, there's probably multiple things we can do. I'm only going to highlight a few. And the other thing to acknowledge is that this will most likely be a lifelong fight. You see, there's a sense in which you and I, we have to, to freshly believe the gospel of done every day. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying you have to be reconverted or be resaved every day. But rather, uh, for us to truly get this, because again, I, I think we get it theologically, or you probably wouldn't be here in a Protestant church, but I think we get this theologically and theoretically, but practically, on the ground, day in and day out, in our thoughts, in our behaviors, 
And because that's so hard for us to live this out practically, we need to preach the gospel of grace. The gospel of it is finished. The gospel of grace through faith to ourselves every day. Because if not, we will default back to works theology. You know, I shared with you that me driving home and, and beginning to think those thoughts. And, and that's what was happening there. And I had to just say, no. No, the gospel says that, that Christ took all of my wrath, all of my sin, all of my shame. And, and so he's not going to punish me by, by uh, you know, taking my wife or something. And so I had to, to, to preach the gospel to myself in that moment. And, and I really like what David Murray in his book, The Happy Christian, he says here. He says this. He says, our works are always waiting in the wings. So think about a stage here in a, a play. Our works are always waiting in the wings, looking for any opportunity to run on stage and replace done with multiple do's, don'ts, shoulds, oughts, and must." Their ugly costumes, their stumbled lines, and amateur acting change the whole mood of the show. Hogging the spotlight, silencing the applause, emptying the theater, arousing the ire of the critics, and bringing down the curtain on any hope of a long and prosperous run. The most successful uh, Christians, Christian lives are those that manage to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the divine done. But how do I get to enjoy this show? Faith. Faith in Jesus is the entrance fee. That's exactly what we see in the Bible. You know, in Hebrews 11, it's called the faith chapter. And we looked at that a lot in our Judges series. But, but what you see there is it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But then we come to chapter 12, and, and, and halfway through verse 1, we read this. He says, let us also lay aside every weight... And the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the only way that we're going to be able to overcome our self-righteousness or our persistent guilt is if you and I, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, and in that passage we're told to, to lay aside or to throw off those weights, to throw off the weights of, of trying to work our, for our salvation, to try to earn it, to throw those off. We're to keep our eyes on Jesus, on the one who founded and, and perfected our faith, and who is now sitting at the throne of the right hand of God. Do you know why it's so significant that Jesus is sitting down? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Maybe you uh, thought he was lazy or, you know, got a cramp in his foot or something. And so he's like, I just got to sit down. No, that's not why he's sitting down. He's sitting down because it proves that his work on the cross was enough. It proves that when he rose from the dead that he accomplished it. It proves that it is finished. He's sitting down because the work's done. And so that's the first thing. We need to, to flood our minds with gospel truth and preach it to ourselves every day. Day, but what else can we do? Well, I think in order for you and I to do this successfully, we're going to need community. You see, the thing about community is that it offers us both the encouragement and the accountability to actually be able to do these things. You see, I think there's something very powerful when you and I, when we come into this room week after week and we, we stand up next to one another and we sing out those gospel truths. There's something powerful when we come in here and we declare with one voice what we believe. 
There's something powerful when we sit under the teaching of the Word of God and we submit together our lives under it. You see, it's encouraging to come into this place week after week and to know that that no matter what our culture is promoting that week, right, because it changes so often, but that whatever they're promoting and saying we should do that week or, or whatever is going on in the news, to know that you and I, we come in here and we are united by our belief in the same God, the same Savior, the same cross. That's why it says earlier in Hebrews chapter 10 that we are to, to not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. But we are to be all the more to, to meet, to encourage one another, and especially as we see the day drawing near. You see, I think some of us, again, because of the, the pace of our culture, or perhaps because of our persistent guilt or self-righteousness, we have begun to neglect meeting together. We said, well, you know, I, I, I used to go to church every week, but, but now I think once or twice a month will do. You know, I need to get some stuff done around the house. I'm just so behind on those house projects. I, I haven't spent much time with the family lately. I've been traveling a lot for work. And so I, I think today we just need to rest. We need to stay home. When, you do, when we do that, I mean, I can't do that because I work here. It would be awkward and I'd get fired. But when you do that, when we choose not to come here week after week, not only do you hurt yourself and your family, but you actually you hurt the overall body of Christ. You see, Christ in, in, the, in the Bible, he describes our church as a body, the church as a body. And he says there's many members. And so when you don't come, we miss out on your gifts. When you don't come, we miss out on your encouragement, your faith. And again, if we're going to make it in this life, if we're going to make it in our walks with the Lord, we're going to need the encouragement of community to fight trying to justify ourselves. But not only that, we also need the accountability that community provides. Again, we see in Galatians, which I've already mentioned is Paul's major work on defending salvation by grace. But, but in chapter 2, there's this very interesting and even surprising thing we read. We, we find out that Paul actually opposed Peter to his face. And what, what would cause Paul to, to uh, go and confront the leader of the Jerusalem church, the, the main man, if you will, what would cause him to just overreact, and, or not overreact, but to go and to, to rebuke Peter, uh, Peter to his face? What happened there in that chapter is we see that, that Peter was in Antioch, where Paul was, and, and they were the uh, primarily Gentile believers. And he's there, and they're eating, and he's having a good time with them, and he's fellowshipping with them. But then some Jews came down from Jerusalem, these, these men that are called uh, as being uh, from James of the circumcision party. And when Peter sees them, he, he kind of gets up, he removes himself, he, he separates himself. And so in verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul writes this, he says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I know that sounds confusing. You'll have to study it some other time. We don't have time. But, but uh, he goes on. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, even the Apostle Peter was not above defaulting back to a works theology. 
I mean, he was the guy that, that, that Jesus, in a vision, had clearly revealed to him that the Gentiles were included, that it was through faith in Christ, not, not through obeying the law. And yet this man, he needed the accountability of community to rebuke him and to point out his error. And so if, if Peter needed that, certainly we do as well. But I'm going to be honest with you. It's probably going to take more than just coming to church once or twice a month. It's, it's probably going to take you getting uh, plugged in and involved in a life group or, or doing life with some fellow believers who can speak into your life, who have that, that permission, that platform to do that, who can encourage you, but who also can rebuke you when you are not living in light of the gospel. And so now maybe you're thinking, wow, you, just, you gave a whole message on how we're not saved by our works, and now you're telling me to do all of these things. You're saying I have to come to church every week. You're saying that, that I have to get involved in a life group, and you're saying that I have to preach to myself every day. Well, don't, you're misunderstanding me. I'm, saying, I'm not saying we have to do those things in order to earn or to gain our salvation. But rather, we should do those things. We don't have to, but, but we should do those things because they help us better understand our salvation. So not earn, but to understand. See, again, when we finally get this, when the penny finally drops, when we understand that there's nothing we could do, that we're already accepted in Christ, we'll finally be free to rest. We'll finally be free to say no to people, right? Some of us have a hard time just saying, no, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that. We'll be free from the fear of man. We'll even be free from the fear of death. You see, because when you get this, you and I will be able to close our eyes on that day and understand that when we wake up in glory, when we stand before God at that judgment seat, that we'll be able to just say, it's because of Christ. It's because of His blood. His blood covered me. His blood was enough. And that is the only way I'm getting into here. And so it'll be enough and we can actually rest from the fear of death. But again, this this most likely will not be a one and done experience or moment. But rather, this is a day-by-day, week-by-week remembering and reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ and therefore reminding ourselves of the happy salvation we have in Him. Let's pray. Father, we so need Your help to, to let this truth sink into our hearts. Fathers, we're about to sing in a moment, Lord. Help us to understand that we are children of God. Lord, if we are in Christ, we have been uh, brought into the family of God, and therefore, we, have to, we don't have to no longer be a slave to fear. And God, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, I pray that they would just be able to, for the first time, understand that, that you are not asking them to clean themselves up. You're not asking them to, to begin to follow all these religious rules. You're just simply saying, come to me in faith. If you come to me in faith, then, then, then my grace is enough. You have, I, will, I will give you Christ's righteousness, and it'll be enough. And so, Lord, if there's someone here today who needs to hear that, who needs to put their faith in you, I pray that you would, that you would uh, lead them in that, Lord, that you would prompt their hearts to, to, to receive Christ. God, for the rest of us, for us believers, Lord, for some of us, whether it's been a, a couple years or, or 30 years, Lord, help us to, to freshly this morning to understand God, that we are accepted in Christ. God, to recapture that joy of our salvation and that, that moment of, of time when we just realized we were free. And we, had a, we didn't have to fight anymore. We didn't have to, to keep working, Lord. It was finished. You finished it on the cross, Lord. Help that, that truth sink deep into our hearts this morning. 
And Father, we just pray that you would now take our tithes and offerings and use them to, to expand your work across this city and across this world. Lord, we thank you that, that you uh, are faithful, that you've been faithful to us. And, and so, Lord, we pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.